Hello, everyone, and thank you for joining us for another episode of the Sunflower Nation. I'm so excited that you are here with us. We have a special guest today, Dr. Tamika Pierre-Louis. Uh, she is um, absolutely amazing, uh, and that is from my experience of her. Um, but I'm going to allow her to introduce herself and uh, give us a, a little bit of information about her past and her journey. So good morning, Sunflower Nation. My name is Dr. Tamika Pierre-Lewis. Um, I am a working mom. I um, would describe myself as a Southern woman living in New York City, even though I've been here since I've been 16 years old. Um, but with that, um, in terms of describing myself as a human being, I like to think of myself as someone that's um, down to earth, I am a bit of, uh, I can be an introvert and an extrovert um, depending on the situation, but I love giving people an opportunity to reveal themselves before um, I dive into um, determining whatever role I am going to be to them. But I definitely try to offer um, the most genuine side of myself and um, just being a rock in any way that I can and being authentic in any way that I can. Um, I find myself outside of being a principal, more of being a surrogate mother, which is which is interesting within itself, because um, even though you have to be responsible for the, the intellectual development of um, children, and I would say that my prop, my student population is primarily black and brown kids, um, mostly of African-American and Caribbean descent that represents about um, 60% of my student population, another 40% is Latino. So they're all um, children of color that bring their own unique perspectives um, as scholars, but then their own cultural lens in terms of how they're um, dealing with the world. And just some of the unique traumas that I've noticed that um, they have brought with them having come out of these recent two years of what's been going on in the world has been interesting. So I've been dealing a lot with that um, while still trying to juggle with keeping kids on track to graduate on time and um, keeping them inspired and seeing the um, validity in terms of taking school seriously and seeing high school as a bridge to, you know, either going into the workforce or hopefully going on to um, post-secondary studies. So it's been a unique experience. So what um, grade range do you work with specifically? Um, so it's high school is grades. Your high nine, school, nine to 12. Nine through 12, yes. Okay. And I think, you know, I think you're absolutely right. I think this is probably one of the most difficult times in education uh, mm -hmm. because obviously, um, there's a focus on the academics, but we can't forget about the emotional well-being of the students. Yes. And, you know, I currently serve on the Board of Education for my town. And one of the things that I'm constantly debating um, with my fellow board members about is, yes, we need to address the fact that we have a large population of failing students. Mm -hmm. right? But yeah. um, my personal belief is that before a student can learn, um, they have to have some basic needs met. And if they're not in an emotional state where yes. they can receive information, 
There's no amount of specialist, um, special math, you know, specialist or English specialist that you are going to put in the classroom that is really going to affect the change that you want to see because those kids have so many other things distracting them in their minds. And I admire the fact that you call yourself a surrogate mom to those students uh, mm-hmm. because it speaks to um, the way you receive the students um, yeah. and you view them. You're not just viewing them as these kids with problems. Yes. You're viewing them as these are my kids mm-hmm. and they have problems and I'm going to help them navigate it. So I definitely admire that. For sure. I mean, it was something that I only recently had. I always saw my students as my kids, but I didn't realize my role as a surrogate mother until, you know, the past recent months I've had um, to deal with a series of um, events around children engaging with vaping and, you know, succumbing to peer pressure having anxiety about being around other children because you have to remember my school is only three years old, even though the network that I'm a part of is over 14 and a half years old, going on 15 years old. But our our CTE school has only been three years in existence. So the second year of its existence is when I came on board as the head of CTE. But the first two years of the school's existence um, started during the pandemic. So over mm. half of the school, the half of the school's population um, came in person, while the other elected um, to stay and get remote, stay home and, and receive remote instruction. Most much like um, the Department of Education in New York City. So um, you know, the first year of their high school experience was you know sitting in their bedroom, um, electing to turn their camera off or not. Um, pointing the camera up to the ceiling if they did turn it on and just not having that same human contact and peer social connection with their peers that we took me may have taken for granted having had our you know quote unquote normal high school experience so you're dealing with kids that came out of middle school did not have the opportunity to feel um, what it's like to, you know, walk into a high school building, feel like a freshman, trying mm-hmm. to figure out their way, um, navigating through social circles to see who they develop a connection with, building relationships with teachers and just having that um, genuine, authentic experience that a average ninth grader would have. So you have that and then you have those who are coming up that they those students are now 11th graders so as restrictions on during the pandemic starting to lighten a bit you have those who um were you know ninth graders that ascended to be in 10th graders that started experiencing what it was like to have some normalcy so they have less of the disconnect that their um predecessors have and they're now the 10th graders, but now you're dealing with the, I'm dealing with the n- new ninth graders that were middle schoolers during the pandemic. And the last two years of middle school, they didn't necessarily um, have the same privilege as well in terms of that human connection and being able to socially develop and prepare as high schoolers. So you're dealing with all of that coupled with um, how the world has changed in terms of legislation um, around cannabis, um, even though legislation around cannabis may become um, uh, economic generated from, for New York, it has 
the change in the legislation, I will say, has made life difficult somewhat for schools because um, I would say in my own experience and just looking at the recent news, a lot of these smoke shops are popping up near schools. Mm -hmm. A lot of the products that they have are they're selling are visually geared towards children. Absolutely. And we're dealing with an epidemic of kids that are getting introduced to marijuana use much earlier than I have any knowledge of. Um, And kids are not, they're not seeing it as a danger because if it's in, if if it's in a vape pen and it's liquid, it's not what we know of um, cannabis to be when we grew up where it was in its organic form and you had to, you know, roll it up and, 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 and things of that sort. So it's so it's convenient. It's in a pan, it's liquid. They, they don't make the connect um, the connection with where it came from. And because it's not organic and you don't know where it came from um, in terms of being developed in the lab and not knowing what they put into it, you don't know what type of implications it's going to have on your brain development. So it's it's dealing with a lot of that. I've had some scary moments where I've had at least three incidents of kids eating edibles, not being able to feel their face, not being able mm. to feel certain parts of their body having to call the ambulance, having to call the parents. And there was an incident when a young lady, um, she could not even speak. She wasn't verbal. Wow. And I, and it, I mean, it shook me to the core because as a mom, I'm like, just imagining that happening to one of my children. It was just, it was a bone harrowing experience because I, you know, I asked her, what did you take? And she was like, literally, uh, they're afraid to tell too. Right. But she couldn't speak. She couldn't speak. She could not speak. And then um, her father came. And when she saw her father, her eyes lit up and he said, he said, I won't say her name, obviously, but he was like, do you know who I am? And she was like, it was like almost in a state of shock because she was realizing that she couldn't speak. But it was just that experience that made me realize that we are in a different world, a different time. And all of the initiatives around social emotional learning, (laughs) which is a term we like to um, throw around in secondary education, um, there has to be a match in the messaging in terms of what does that look like in practice. Right. Not just saying that, you know, we we know that there's a deficit in terms of our kids not having that that chance to go through that transitional phase wherever they were in their life academically. And I don't think that has yet to be addressed. And I don't think that we there's truly has been a ro- a proper roadmap drawn for educators on in terms of how to deal with it. I, I try to I try to deal with it through transparency in terms of telling parents we're having an issue. We need your help. We need you to talk to your children about the dangers of cannabis, whether it's in weed form, edibles, um, organic forms with the leaf, um, liquid, edibles. We just need to have that talk because most of the students that I've had to reprimand for using cannabis on on campus. When I've had one-on-ones with them, they told me it started in middle school. Yeah. So I have a middle schooler and I definitely see that um, as a major topic of conversation lately. Mm -hmm. Um, 
you know, my son actually has been offered edibles yes. at one point. And so it is definitely scary and stressful. And so as the head administrator of your building, um, but also as a mom, how has all of that stress affected you? And what are you doing to take care of yourself? You know, I've really just starting to, started to become cognitive of its impact on my mental health. Because I like to think of myself as a strong person, but I'm the type of person that will take a lot in before I complain about it or before I even acknowledge it. Because it's like, okay, it is what it is. I got to do what I got to do. It's like that type of mentality. Um, but I only recently realized that it was having um, an impact on my mental health when I started to feel it in my neck. And mm. I would start getting migraines and like on Sundays, like where I would think about Mondays and the week ahead and like, okay. And it was the first time I started to feel it physically. Um, but I've been okay. I've been able to manage it through prayer, just finding my own, you know, opportunities for Zen, if you will, um, by, you know, being, allowing myself to be in a state of quietness, allowing myself to sleep longer if I need to sleep longer just allowing myself to have that those quiet moments of pause and not feeling like I have to be on a hamster wheel continuously how I usually would allow myself to be so th that's what I'm starting to do but during I'm in a building I like to go when I go and do my rounds and I'm visiting classrooms I like to visit classrooms where I see students who are um, engage and eagerly wanting to express their understanding of whatever the con content that's being shared or taught, that reinvigorates me in knowing that, okay, I have a student population of over 350 kids because we only have grades 9 through 11th now. 11th now. And even with the anticipation of that um, blossoming into over 500 kids next year, that's the small number of kids that I have the experience of those type of episodes do not equate to the vast majority of kids that I, I serve. So I have to keep reminding myself that statistically um, that it's not the end of the world. It is a problem. It's a serious problem, but there are other kids who are saying no, they're not succumbing to peer pressure. They know right from wrong. They they have an idea of the danger of it. And they're doing what they're doing the best that they can to move through their daily lives as teens. So that's what gives me hope in terms of knowing like, even though I've had close episodes um with other children and who who succumb to the peer pressure because last week I had an issue with one of my children who had an IEP he ate an edible and he had a um, bad reaction to it. And he's a child that I had developed a, a close relationship with last year. And I was out at a conference when they called me and told me that he, you know, he took something in the bathroom. At first, he wouldn't tell anybody what it was. They called the ambulance. I'm all the way in Brooklyn. And I'm like, well, I got to drive back. And it was like, it doesn't make any sense. Dr. P, by the time you get here, the ambulance will already take right. him, taking him. So um, fortunately, he was able, they was able to revitalize him, but same thing, couldn't feel his extremities. And the interesting thing, I've heard articles about there's been incidents where a lot of this 
this new weed is laced in fentanyl. Yeah, that's very scary. And and, it, and it's very scary, but it's been incidents where kids will share vape pens or mm-hmm. just offer edibles, and the kids that take it weren't really part a part of the the culture, the subculture of like, oh, this is what I'm into. There were usually kids that were what you would consider smart mm-hmm. <laughs> and know to know better and. Even though this child has an IEP, he's a very um, personable kid. He's he has um, uh, he's done he's worked very hard to to make maintain his grades academically. And I wouldn't call him a kid that wouldn't know right from wrong because he knows right. how to navigate through school without any assistance. He's like someone that has an invisible disability mm-hmm. um, and high functioning. So when I asked the Pierre Luis, I'm going to shift our focus because it's. It is so clear and evident how passionate you are about your yeah, students sure. um, and particularly um, this subject. Um, yeah. But I want to focus on you. Oh, um, okay. <laughs> I, but I, I think, again, it speaks to the level of educator that you are, that your primary focus are your students. And, and that's commendable. Um, yeah, but but if- I, I will say what I was leading, heading up to when I asked him why he did it. Mm-hmm. He said, because they were amping me. And I was like, well, why didn't you say no? And he said, I don't know why. And that to me is the knowing and that connects to uh, my passion as an educator around um, what is social emotional learning. And and to me, as an educator, um, that comes in the form of culturally responsiveness practices because a lot of kids don't know who they are they don't have a sense of connection to their heritage. Yes, they know. Yeah, I know I'm Jamaican. Yeah, I know I'm Haitian. But they don't have that sense of connection and pride in terms of what do I bring? What do I walk into this environment every day in my my identity as a person that should give me that that spiritual gumption, that mental strength to not succumb to someone just amping me to do something that I know that can be harmful to myself. Right. Yeah. So you mentioned um, you view yourself as a strong woman. Yes. Um, And so a lot of times we talk about, um, you know, the strong black woman. Mm -hmm. And, you know, my listeners know that that's what my uh, dissertation topic was around. So I, I love first hearing you mention strength because I like to hear people's different definitions of strength. But then you said you realize that you realize when you need a break, you realize when you need to walk away. Yeah. Um, and to me, that is, um, that's, that's promising to hear. Uh, yeah. Because again, my, my subject was the evolution yes. of the strong black woman. Uh, oh. Because in the past, what would we do? We just keep working and pushing. They need us. And so we keep going. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, it's great to hear um, and very reassuring to hear women saying, no, I, I, I've i learned that I need to take a break yeah. um, because it's exactly what happens. You started having that neck pain. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and oftentimes it goes ignored yeah. um, and develops into something more serious. So I'm so happy that um, you recognize that and you've been addressing it. How about your family? I know you have uh, two sons, correct? Yes, I have a 12-year-old and a five-year-old. 
Okay. And how uh, do you balance your time with them and uh, being a, a full-time career mom? By the grace of God, that's the only, <laughs> that's the only way that I can put it. Um, I take moment by moment, day by day. Um, I allow myself grace if I fall short one day um, opposed to the next. And I just try to show up and be there for my for my children as best that I can. I know when I was going through my doctoral program, um, it was like um, a continual feeling of, like I said, um, of being uh, like a hamster in a wheel. Just the days were uh, blending into the next. Oh, you! Were, I felt like I was constantly pulled in many different directions. And what I don't, I personally don't feel that I was that great of a wife. That's another story. But my husband was um, supportive enough and gracious enough to listen to me whenever I had different stresses, whether it was at work or any concerns that um, we had um, collectively for our children. But um, in terms of being a mother, being there, uh, not uh, not being there because I was busy working on my doctoral um, studies and trying to um, acclimate into my role at work. I felt like my children got bits and pieces of me. Mm -hmm. I was given everything to everyone else because you want to do a good job. You want to um, make us... uh, impact on your organization or whatever role it is that you're playing. So you don't want to be perceived as being incompetent or not having a strong work ethic. And I think the timing was um, serendipitous that my studies ended when it did, because I started noticing my older son, even though he was going into his preteens, he started needing me less because he would be the type up under me all the time and I would come home from work and come home from school and then we were like, hey, what, EJ, what's going on? Hi, mom. Nothing. I'm good. And it was like I noticed the disconnect yeah. with my child that um, I had not previously known or ever experienced. So I think with that being a blessing and being able to manage my time and prioritize what I will devote my energies towards I've been making um um a, a true effort to do things and have more conversations with him to make sure that I stay connected with who he is and who he's growing into becoming so that that was that was interesting in knowing that um these past three and a half four years of me grinding and working to to ascend to what what it is that I'm trying to be or um, aspiring to be as a professional woman, I have to remain connected to who I am as a mother, a wife and a mother, more so as a mother, because of course, as a wife, you have responsibilities in terms of providing that emotional um, support to your husband that, um, that connection to your spouse, but they ha- your spouse, your spouse, I would like to think as an adult have that capacity of self-care, whereas children do not yet have that. 
So it's it feels the guilt the guilt feels slightly different. Actually, it feels very different when you're not there for your child, opposed to not being there in a manner or that you can be for your spouse. I don't know if you can relate to what I'm saying. I can definitely but, relate. Absolutely. Don't neglect that husband, though. I know. I know. <laughs> I know. <laughs> but don't neglect you know, that husband because they're like your next, you know, uh, your yeah, third child. <laughs> yeah, I know that too. I know, I know that too. And I've reckon I've recognized that too, but I, I think I think that I have a, a a good husband in terms of the fact he's been gracious. I will I will say that he's been gracious. But what I've learned, as I said, with the physicality of holding the stress in your body and starting to realize that, okay, I'm I'm I've I have spread myself too thin. Mm-hmm. Start feeling it. You have to listen to your body because that's God's way of throwing a pebble before he throws a huge boulder at you. And that's what I've been doing. Um, and and when I need to, you know, still a moment and have that um, intimate connection with my husband, I make time for that. But um, most importantly, what I've started to do is just reconnecting with myself. I haven't been connected mm-hmm. to myself. It's a thing to try to be something to someone else when you haven't been that thing to yourself. I don't mm-hmm. know if that makes any sense to Absolute you. Sense. Absolutely. Yeah, but you know, you know, knowing knowing who you are as a woman, we're we're strong-minded women and when you decide to do something, it becomes this goal that you latch on to like a spider monkey. And it's like, I'm not going to stop until I... Nothing's getting in the way. Nothing's getting in the way. I'm not going to stop until I get the thing that I identify that I want. And that it's like you have blinders on. It's tunnel vision. Like whatever it is, it is that thing that I'm aiming for. I'm not stopping until I reach that destination. I agree completely. The only thing I see in the little purview of my eye is my son. Yes. And that I'll jump out (laughs) Yes, but, <laughs> but everything but, else is like, <laughs> yeah, everything else is Focus. like that. But I had, but I had the benefit of knowing, okay, I'm here when my, I'm here physically when my children need me. I'm here for those sweet moments when they want to curl up next to me. But I'm like, I'm still laser focused because I know it's only for this period of time, right. and there will be a moment where I can decompress and let go and be all that I need to be to you. But right now I'm focused on this thing. And I also realized that in being focused on that thing, you can become disconnected from what you need along that path. And I don't know if that makes any sense to anyone listening, but that is something that I realized where I was like, oh, I haven't had a pedicure in a long time. Well, I do think that that's where having a a really good husband comes into play. Because, you know, as supportive as he might be, I'm sure there are days where he's like, "Uh uh-uh, we're stopping today. Yeah. And today we're going to do this instead. Um, You know, or, you know, he sees you working and he brings you a plate of food. You know, I think those things are so important in a partner. He's he's been amazing. He's been amazing. My husband is um, of Haitian um, descent. And um, ironically, the story of, I think what makes him the type of man that he is, is that when he was in Haiti, they, they immigrated to America when he was around six years old. 
So just a year older than my current son. And I remember when I had my oldest son, his mother came and lived with us for a year to help me out with um, EJ. And um, mama told me um, stories about when um, they were in Haiti and her husband was going to law school. He would walk to school and this man would drive by every day and say, where are you headed, son? And he said, I'm going to school. He said, what are you studying in law? And this went on for a few years. And then the man said, well, when you finish school, I'm going to hire you. And Papa never knew who, knew who this man was. Um, when he did finish school, the man came off, you know, stopped and picked him up one day as he was walking along the road and asked him what he was up to. And he said, well, I finished school. I'm looking for a job. And he was like, well, I told you once you finish school, I would hire you. So he brought him in as a law clerk and then uh, Papa ascended to become a judge. This person was, I believe, Papa Doc. <laughs> and during that time um, when they started to become political unrest um, and um, my father-in-law, who's deceased that I never had the privilege of meeting, um, decided to get my husband and his family out of the country. Mama came to America um, by herself and she cleaned houses. And before in Haiti, they had housekeepers and mm -hmm. um, they were pretty much living the life of an uh, upper uh, upper middle class family. They, you know, they mm -hmm. had a home and things of that sort. So her telling me her story, her womanhood of taking on coming to America, leaving her kids behind and having to make money to send back for them. And then um, going through that evolution and that change. And then when Papa came to um, America, he could not get a job in law. So he ended up taking care of the kids. So if you can imagine that shift in that dynamic of being the breadwinner, going from being the breadwinner and coming from a white collar type of existence and coming to a country where you could not replicate that existence. Mm -hmm. And um, at some point his health started to decline and mama became the breadwinner. Right. So I think in my husband witnessing that, that um, he developed a sense of empathy in terms of seeing that shift in that dynamic between his parents, where he, I guess, is try he's he's emulating what he may have he's seen. He's a nurturer. Yes, he's a nurturer. So that I will, is such a good quality in a man. Yeah. How long have you been married? Um, we've been married um over my, around thirteen years. Wonderful. Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. But that's not to say we don't have our share of challenges, but I think that in terms of looking at it through a spiritual lens, I think I am very fortunate and blessed to have someone um, someone um, with the temperament that my husband has. Because if he didn't, I don't think we would have been able to. Right. That's for sure. So tell me about, um, since you've started the position, what has been... Uh, the most surprising thing for you or what has been most challenging? What I find interesting because much of my career was in architecture, which is white male dominated. And um, there was a blend in my career of being in architecture and design 
at one point and construction, which also is equally male dominated. So I've, I've had the fortune of being able to develop um, a tough exterior in terms of dealing with um, men in positions of power um, and being able to stand my ground and say what I have to say to do what I needed to do. But coming into education, it's a slightly different realm because you're dealing with um, you're dealing with um, individuals, or say males, um, that may be in positions of authority or power, if you if you will, but their method of communicating is slightly different. Or, I mean, mansplaining is still the same. You have to you have to tolerate the mansplaining and someone cutting you off when you're trying to make a point. Someone saying to you, "Oh well, people think." Or people don't like how you wrote this email or people want you. And it, it's that has been interesting because usually, like I said, it comes in different nuances. But having to overcome that and st still remain confident and firm in your dis daily decision making is a challenge because you have people that are... um forward with their thinking in terms of them opposing whatever your position is mm -hmm. as a leader. But then you have to deal with the sub subtleties of people who have that those microaggressions coming along. They don't want to admit that they're misogynists, but they do things in a way that undermine your authority to make people question, is she confident? Should she be here? But then you, at the same token, while navigating that, you have to still maintain a sense of decorum because you never want to let them see you sweat. That's right. You never want to make them allow them to make you step out of character. So that that has been interesting for me because it's been a different dynamic. Um, coming back into education as an administrator, opposed to my years as being in architecture and construction, it's certainly been different. There's a lot of similarities. But it certainly has been different. And I have to be cognitive of, well, in construction, you can let somebody have it. And they were like, okay, all right, I'm not going to cross that line with her anymore. But in education, you can't necessarily do that. Because you got to model the way. You got, you, yeah. <laughs> the kids are watching. <laughs> yeah. yeah. That moment you stop to curse somebody out. It's oh. right outside your office door. <laughs> oh. <laughs> so that right there has been a mind twister right. yeah for sure so um having to navigate that and then you have nuances where you have women that it's, it's very interesting I, i'm trying if i want to say the right thing i don't want to say tell something. me more about the women because i've had a, a a lot of i've done a lot of research on um the way women treat other women um, in leadership roles. And, you know, it's always uh, disheartening to know that Very. You know, the, the the person that you thought was going to be your ally and supporter um, oftentimes is the person who is trying to tear you down. Uh, and it hurts. Yeah. Right? It hurts so much. I remember, you know, moving into a uh, vice presidency and, you know, someone who I was friends with for 10 plus years 
you know, was there with me through illness, mm-hmm. through childbirth, yeah. you know, she stopped talking to me. And she started spreading rumors about oh, me at the job. How dare she? How dare she? I was just like, what? Yeah. <laughs> like, uh, and honestly, it hurt. More than anything else, it really did hurt. Because when you consider somebody a friend, yeah, um, and to have that friend do that to you, um, that hurts. That hurts. Yeah. I, I And I've experienced that. I mean... Not uh, well. I can't compare the time that you had with your colleague in terms of it being ten years. But people that I started off where I d- developed genuine relationships in my first year in this organization, who I considered myself be- being cool with, how they made an immediate shift or about turn when I was appointed as a principal, or um, you know, people making you feel like when you come in the room they have to stop talking. So automatically you feel like okay, well, what's going on? Why can't you talk? I'm not Mussolini. Why you feel you can't talk when I'm in your presence? Like what's going on? And I had to, I had to get over that for a while because I was like, um, you have a right to feel how they feel. And but I, it is lonely at the top. It is lonely. It is lonely, but I had to really. And I, again, I will say converse having the benefit of conversations with my husband who um, is an entrepreneur himself and, and, you know, being a man and they see things slightly through a different lens. And he, he was like, you're the boss. That's how people respond. You, he was like, they realize it. Why don't you recognize it? (laughs) Like you're not, you're you're not going to please everybody. So get over it. Everybody's not going to like you and the decisions that you make. So get over it. And it was a tough pill pill to swallow. But once I was able to digest that pill, I was able to sleep better mm-hmm. because I was, you know, I never thought of myself as a people pleaser, but making that shift because I always was in positions of like middle senior management or teetering in between that little, that edge, because one of the reasons why I left architecture, to be honest with you, was my previous employer, um, in which I shall not name, but my previous employer had um, allowed me to do the work of a director and would never promote me to become a director. And when I got pregnant with my second son, they posted a position for a directorship for a job I was doing for nearly three years. I was working with the general counsel, the CFO, the COO. I was doing the job of a director. They posted the job. I interviewed for it. The rumors were remembering, oh, you're going to get it. You're going to get it. But they don't want to give it to you. And I was like, well, I don't want, they want to give it to me because they feel that, you know, you're too headstrong, you're too outspoken, you're not, they don't, they're not going to be able to tell you to do whatever they want to tell you to do. Like, you're not going to be a yes person. And I was like, no, they're going to be fair because I've been doing the job. So they waited until I went on maternity leave. And they gave it to a white man with a high school diploma. And had none of the credentials that they posted in the um, the job description. The job description. That was the first time I felt black, black, <laughs> <and> black, <laughs> black, and black. I was like, "Wow!" 
I've always been able to push and navigate through life and work hard. And be like, if I have this and I'm able to measure up and go toe to toe with someone based on credentials and my work ethic, I've been able to pretty much get through life decently. But that was the first time I, it was a blatant slap in the face. Like, we don't care how educated you are, black lady. We are not giving you this position. Title. This title. You could have the, you could do the work. Oh, but we're not giving you the title. But listen, I'll tell you, give you one better. I filed a complaint against them. I won't go deeply into it. It might be public record. I don't care who can get it because I have nothing to hide. But they offered me, offered to pay me more to equivalent what the role would play, pay, pay, but they would not give me the, um, the directorship. We know you were doing the work. We'll pay you the salary of what you would get if you were if you had the title, but we can't give you the title. So that's why I decided to go back to education. But that was like, yeah, that was the that's first. very insulting. That's it very insulting very, and very telling. Yes, it's yes. very telling that you're willing to give me the money, but you don't. But you won't give me the title. They did not want me to be, have that title. They they rather give it to a white man who had a high school diploma. Granted, he probably had 15, 16 years of experience. I'm not saying he was incompetent, but he certainly wasn't doing the work that I was doing. Right. And that and that is what made me feel like. Um, who? That's made me really understand the quote from I think it's Maya Angelou. You have to learn when to leave the table when love is no longer being served. But love was no was never actually served. Respect was being served to a degree. But once the contempt, they were able to show the contempt that, oh, we tolerated you because you we knew you were a workhorse and you were mm. an extra mile. But we're not going to give you that type of respect. You must be crazy. We're not calling you no director. You might have two master's degrees and you might have almost 20 years of experience, but we're not calling you no director. And it was then that I realized that it's time for me to walk away from this table. And I always ask people, what was that pivotal moment for them? And clearly yeah. for you, that, was, that it. was it. That, was, that it. was it. Well, let me tell you, I think it it was, I always say, I, I'm, I'm not going to say that I'm sorry that you went through that. Mm -hmm. Because you going through that allowed you to change your trajectory, go into okay. education and look at the impact that you're making now. So and, I, I'm not sorry that you went through that. I'm yeah. glad that you went through that because yeah. the lives that you are touching on a daily basis now and the impact oh, that you're making. Um far it, more without it's purposeful. You, yes. you know, sometimes you got to go through things to get to where God is propelling you to. Yes. And it hurts sometimes. Yes. But that was hurt. That was right a, that where was, you need to be. That was a good, that was a, uh, a gut check. Mm. That, that was a gut check for sure. I don't think I went through a, it's, it's interesting because I went to a funeral service last night of the um, wife of the founder of my charter school network. And, um, and to listen to people give eulogies about her life and her impact on people. And one of the things that stood out to me that one of the ministers said is that he, he likened it to one of the parables where he was talking about the three women that went 
to Moab and one came out bitter and one came back. Like they all lost their husbands and they came back different mm-hmm. and changed. And one of the, and when he, as he told the story and I forgive me for not having the names because it, it literally just popped into my head um, in terms of what he shared last night. But that's, that story stuck out to me because it reminded me of what I went through when I left the field of architecture and in that realm. And I was like, well, thank God I didn't come out better. That's the, that's the thing that I grabbed from it. Um, it was broken, bitter. And, um, I think the third one was changed, but when he told the story, I, I recognized quickly, I'm, I wasn't broken. I'm not bitter, but I definitely have changed. And I've changed in the manner that I know that life is fleeting. And I know that no one can give you your value. You can only value yourself. And that comes mm-hmm. from a sense of um, self-affirmation and self-love. You cannot get respect. Respect doesn't come from the external from outside from other people you have to love and respect yourself enough to know when a situation isn't right no matter how much money is around that situation and what type of status or title that may come from that situation if something is not deserving of your presence you have to love yourself enough to extract yourself away from whatever that situation is and that was my life lesson i had to let it go no matter how qualified I was and how well I could do do the job with my eyes closed. I was like, if you're working with people that don't recognize your talent or respect your gift or your presence, it's almost like yourself, almost, almost a form of self-mutilation. You're allowing yourself to be cut on a daily basis in a metaphor, you know, in a metaphorical sense, you know what I'm saying? But if you don't love yourself enough and you don't say this is not acceptable, no one else is going to do it for you. Right. And when something, and, and it only happens when something is done to you where either you make that stance to say enough is enough. I'm going to move on. Or someone says, you know what? We don't need you anymore. It comes in a form that if you, if you don't make that, that change, or if you don't come come to that epiphany, someone will someone will do it for you and force you to learn that lesson. And even in someone dismissing you and saying, "You know what? We don't need you anymore." There's there's still opportunities to not be bro- um, broken or um, leave the situation better, but change. And I think that having the having the blessing of walking away from it, change and saying, "Okay, what would make me happy?" And when I thought about that in my period of transition, I thought that, well, I always love teaching. I love learning. Maybe I should go back to, you know, that. And 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 that's what led me to going back into education. But even when I was in architecture, I always handled all the compliance issues, making sure people were trained, writing the curriculum around what the new laws were in terms of the new certifications people had to have. And 
once I started drawing that connection on what I was doing and how that would connect to me going back into education, that's when I said, you know what? Everything happens for a reason. Every life experience that you have is a, uh, is a journey or a chapter taking you towards your destination. So once I was able to recognize that and connect the dots for myself, then I was able to just hit the ground running. And I say, when God blesses something, you face, you, you normally face very little obstacles. It's almost scary. It's like, once you recognize that thing that you, that you feel that you were meant to do and that you're willing to do, whether you get the pay or the accolades for is it's like, it's, it happens so fast and without very little opposition that is almost a scary thing. And that's what happened for me when I said, you know what? What do I love? What do I like? And what can I live with doing that will be fulfilling? And once I was able to identify what that was, I was able to move forward and just be turn turn a turn the chapter, turn the page and move on. And that's what we that's that's what we have to do as people, but mostly as women. Cause sometimes, and I'll make this connection to um my love life as a woman, because I was dating someone else for over 10 years before um, I met, well, I met my husband. He was all, was my friend for many years, but before I decided to look at him in a romantic sense, I was with someone for over 10 years. And the reason why I stayed with that guy, very successful um, black man. And um, the reason why I stayed with him was like, Oh, I was with him, I was with him so long. How can I walk away from this? Even though it's no longer serving me. And that's what people, that's what, yeah, people, but women, since we're talking about womanhood, that's what women turn, tend to do. We'll latch on to something because, oh, I put so much time into it. I've been with him so long. I've been doing this so long. If I leave, somebody else is going to take advantage of the work that I've done or the work I put into this thing mm -hmm. or this person. And sometimes you just got to take that L to get the big W. And that's and that's what I had to learn. That was my my that was my second life 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 lesson, and letting go a relationship that wasn't serving me emotionally, spiritually, none of that, and letting go a a, a job or a position that wasn't respecting me, and it all yeah, and it all comes back to self love and recognizing that boy that you have to fill. No one can fill your cup. That's right. I say that all the time. So, Ms. Dr. Pierre-Louis, you have definitely uh, given us so much um, to take in. Mm -hmm. um, I appreciate you being so transparent and sharing so much of yourself. Mm -hmm. If you had to give a piece of advice to a young professional woman, what would that be? The advice that I will give to a young professional woman is not being afraid to start over again. The definition of insanity is continuing to do the same thing and expecting a different result. And I mean that metaphorically and in um the and and as well as in life. If you see something is not working, whether it's in your love life, whether it's in your um your career, or whether it's in self-care. Because people develop vices to take care because they're trying to self-medicate themselves them, them, themselves through things that they're not ready to deal with. So if you see something is not working and it's not serving you, you have to have the fortitude and the wherewithal to say, 
okay, I got to let this thing go. It's not serving me. Because people will die holding on to something that's not serving them. And you will die alone, broken, broken, heartbroken, um, broke. (laughs) You know, (laughs) if you don't learn to let a thing go. And and again, it comes back to self-love, identifying who, you know, learning who you are, learning what makes you happy, not being unapologetic about it in your knowingness of it. And knowing like, okay, this is what I like. This is what I don't like. It might sound obnoxious to you, but it's it's what serves me. I can't. And I'm not telling people to go around being obnoxious and not care about other people. But again, it's almost like the analogy of being on a plane and, and them tell and, and the, the 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 steward is giving you the direction that you don't put the mask on your child first, you put it on yourself first, right. then you put it on your child. It's the same in life. You can't be to others what you have not been to yourself. You cannot be a good friend to to others if you don't if you're not a friend to yourself and you don't care for yourself. You don't listen to your body when it tells you it's tired. You don't feed yourself when it tells you you're hungry. You don't detach yourself from people or things when you know it's hurting you. You have to be a friend a good friend to yourself before you can be a good friend to somebody else. You have to be a good and um loyal servant before you can be a great leader. Because some people can't take directions from other people. Like psychologically, they just can't deal with not <laughs> not being able to tell other people what to do. But if you've allowed yourself to be in the trenches and you know what it's like to be someone that's well-meaning, someone who's willing to roll up their sleeves and do the work, then you know what it's like when you put in a position of leadership that you know not how not to treat a person if you endured having a bad leader. Absolutely. You know what I mean? So Absolutely. Yeah. So that's my thing. Not being afraid to let go of a thing when you see it's not working. And if you are able to learn that lesson early in life, it has it saved you a lot of headache, heartache, and aggravation. Awesome. Thank you so much, Dr. Pierre Luis. Uh, for your words. Um, This was so, so, so good. Mm -hmm. Um, I know that my listeners will definitely walk away um, feeling empowered Mm -hmm. um, and and hopefully with the ability to recognize when it's time to let it go. Yes. Before I let let it go. go. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I enjoyed the conversation too, Dr. Banks. Thank you. I, I wish continued success with what you're doing i think just your focusing on black women in general is a sacred thing because not you know being a black woman is hard period i don't care what part of the world you're in right so you know i like to think of of us as the unsung heroes in general uh, I couldn't so agree anytime, more. <laughs> anytime that you you know you have a space where that can be honored is to be commended. It it is a sacred piece of work, and a, and it takes someone of tremendous character and fortitude to dedicate their time and energies to this type of endeavor. So I I, I wish you um, much success in this endeavor, and that you continue to speak to women that can um, provide narratives for other women to see themselves in the story and draw lessons that can, that they can take away and become stronger. Cause that's the most important thing. Absolutely. Thank you so much for your support to my listeners. I want to thank you for listening to today's episode. Uh, 
May your heart be filled with the brightest of sunflowers, even on the cloudiest of days. This is Dr. Edith Banks with the Sunflower Nation, sending you love and positive vibes. Until next time, take care.